You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Check, check. What's up, Mill Sunday Schoolers? So good to see you. Sorry we don't have a countdown today, but it's time to begin. So meet somebody at your table if you're sitting at a smaller table. Jump right in with a bigger table. We're going to do some discussion today, and there's always room up front, so come on up. Meet some people at your table. It'll give you like 30 seconds. Ready to set, go. Check. And then after you're done greeting and meeting, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. I'll give you a second to actually turn to that passage of Scripture. We're in the habit of not putting up the... Um, the, the verses on the board to encourage you to either turn in your Bible, whether it's electronic or paper Bible. So turn to Matthew 19. So Matthew chapter 19, this is, uh, I'll give you another second to, to turn there in, in the text of Scripture. Um, Matthew chapter 19 is where Jesus is um, meets this guy who's a rich young ruler. It's the parable of the rich young ruler. Uh, and I guess it's not really a parable, something that really happened. A guy comes to him and asks him, how he could be saved. And Jesus responds by saying, go sell everything. And that's a very interesting passage about Jesus calling us to give up the things of this world to seek him. So let's read it. Matthew chapter 19, starting in 16, it says, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. Kind of this trick question. He should have said, you are the one who is good because you are God. Um, and Jesus says, if you want to enter life, enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he required, inquired. And Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20 says, all these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And when the rich, uh, the young man heard this, he went, went away sad because he had great wealth. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we, we do come before you and ask that uh, this morning we would be encouraged by this passage, some of the stories we're going to talk about in church history this morning to give up things of this world, um, to be um, people that are willing to, to drop things, pleasures, comforts of this world, conveniences of this world, follow you, to follow your ways, to be your disciples. Lord, we do love you, and we praise you, and everybody scream, amen. So I want to tell you a story. A story about this guy, here's his name, St. Simon, and then you say Stylites, or Stylites, uh, is how you pronounce that. that. That word means a pillar. This is a pretty interesting guy. Here's a picture of him. This picture taken at a party. It looks like he's in a hot tub. Um, he's not in a hot tub. I'll describe what that is in a second. But he lived a long time ago, like 300s, and he is a guy. Get this. He lived on this pillar, and this is just an artist's representation of the pillar. It kind of looks like a hot tub, but it's not a hot tub. Um, he lived on a pillar that was 60 feet in the air, 60 feet high, uh, for 30 years. Think about living on a pillar for just a day. You'd want to make sure you had the right clothes and a blanket and a poncho and uh, a, little, a little seat warmer. 
And then it's like, well, what am I going to do for food? You want to make sure you got to bring up food. And then it's like, well, you don't want to think about this, but uh, what about going to the bathroom? You've you got to think about that. Um, and so then, just think about one day, and then think about another day, and then another day, and, and 30 years of days of living on a pillar. How in the world did he get up there? Not literally. He probably just climbed a rope or a ladder or a helicopter dropped him off. Um, but how did he get up? Like, why in the world would you do this? What in the world was going on at that time that would allow someone uh, to do that? Sometimes I think the, the people who are at the, you know, the, the outliers of our culture are representing some reaction to what's going on. And that is the lesson for today. What was going on in the 300s that would cause St. Simon Silites to live on a pole, on a pillar, for 30 years? Well, his story, just to give you a little uh, more info about this very wild guy, this is uh, a picture of the church dedicated to St. Simon. Saint, it's kind of like a tongue twister. St. Simon Silites, uh, a church, supposedly that pill, that uh that thing, the rock there with the, the round rock on top of it, it's the foundation of the, the pillar that was 60 feet tall that he lived on. And you can see how big it is. There's a guy in the, the left-hand bottom corner there. Um, but St. Simon Stylites was born, just like all of us are born, blind and naked into this world. And he grew up in what is today Turkey or Syria. And he, at some point in his life, around the year of uh, his like, 30th birthday or so, he decided to go out and live kind of on a high place, like go pray. Um, some of us, you know, are familiar with going into the mountains to pray and looking over the city, maybe praying over the city. And he thought, this is such a cool thing that I'm going to stay here for a little while. So he prayed on, on a small pillar, and then successfully, you know, like in his, in his life, he began living on higher and higher pillars until the story I just told you. He lived on a 60-foot pillar for 30 years of his life, and he didn't come down. And it was by his own choice. Think about how weird that is. Isn't that weird? Turn to your neighbor and say, that's not weird. It's not weird. Here's a picture of some people coming to visit St. Simon Stylite, the artist's representation. Because people would come and visit. I mean, if you knew someone was, like, living on a pillar for the last many years, wouldn't you want to go see? Like, whoa, there he is. That's the story I heard. is really real. Like, there's this dude. Um, so people would come visit him. He would bless people from his pillar. He would preach to people from his pillar. Other people wanted to be like him and so became pillar people. I guess that's what you'd say. Pillar people like him, set up their own little pillars. Um, all for the glory of the Lord. Like removing yourself from this world and doing something radical in supposedly being obedient to the Lord. Like the Lord was calling him to do this. Um, and we see it as very weird. I do at least. Anybody else see it as a little weird? Why aren't you raising your hands? That's the weirdest thing in the world. Um, to live on a pillar. I mean, just think for a second about, like, food. Like, some, you'd, you'd lower a bucket. You never came down for 30 years. You'd lower a bucket. Maybe somebody would put your, put some, uh, I don't know, some bacon in there or some bread in there. I don't know what he ate. And he'd bring it up and he'd eat that. And then hopefully he'd have a second bucket for his weights that he would lower down or throw off. Um, sorry if you're eating. Um, here, here's, a, here's another. It's, uh, so you might want to stop eating for a second, just a second. But here, the, one of the stories is told of him of uh, he had a rope around his waist, supposedly, like in case he fell asleep and then rolled out of bed, like he would roll 60 feet. Uh, so he had a rope around his waist that was somehow tied to the top. And uh, after a long time of like wearing a rope, 
um, you kind of get bed sores. And supposedly the story is that a little worm was like eating at his last <laughs> and the worm fell out and he picked back up the worm and said, it put him back and said, eat little worm what the Lord has given you. Ooh, I got a picture of that. Would you like to see a picture? If you don't, close your eyes. Here it is. That's the gummy maggots. Anyways, but this raises a whole lot of questions, don't you think? Like, what in the world is this guy doing? And it's like all for the glory of the Lord, and other people would want to become pillar saints as well. It's very weird to me. It's very weird to you, I'm sure. This idea, this exaggerated life of living for the Lord in such a way that you're, you know, you're, you're not in society, you're dependent upon other people, you're dependent on the Lord, you're, you're praying, you're seen as a holy person living on top of this pillar. People come and seek you out almost like pilgrimage, and then you would preach to them. Um, very interesting, very weird. It raises a lot of questions about what in the world was going on in society at that time to allow this for, the, for this to become a thing, and then other people to visit him, and for other people to become pillar saints as well. What in the world is going on? That's kind of the answer to what we're going to talk about in the Mill Sunday School here this morning. Um, but there is a call that will end with this idea uh, in, in a little while as we conclude Sunday School. We'll end with this idea of what are we called to do? There's some of us in here that have given up our time, especially this week uh, that we're doing the New Life Church 21 Days of Prayer. Anybody go to a prayer meeting this week? Lots of hands. Anybody uh, fasting this week or giving up time to read Scripture? I think the world sees us as pretty strange, like when, it, when we get into spiritual disciplines. Of like, you give up time to read an ancient book? Yes, I do. You give up time to come all the way up to church just to pray? Yeah, I do. You give up uh, energy and you fast certain things or fast food altogether, fast um, food altogether. Yes, like we do. And the world sees that as very strange. And so as we talk today about some, I'm going to talk about uh, another pretty exaggerated view of this life of, of living separate than the world. We'll talk about St. Anthony in a moment. Um, I want us to be encouraged with this idea that we are called to give up the comforts and the pleasures of this world, that we are not of this world, we are of another world, and we, we are called to serve God. So, that's where we're going today. Welcome to the Mill Sunday School, officially. Uh, welcome you. If, you're, 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 uh, if you haven't joined us, if you, today is your first time joining us. There's cards on the table uh, that look something like this, and you could uh, give us your as much or as little information as you want. Bring it to the nice, as you leave, there'll be uh, people in the back and they'll give you a little gift baggie with, like, a book that our senior pastor, Brady Boyd, wrote. Um, so that's for you if you're new. And um, welcome. So we're in this series, if you don't know, about uh, doing church history. This month of January, we are talking about the spread of the imperial church. So when Christianity is legalized, um, again, spreading, and so that's what we're talking about. We, we have been doing, giving you some assignments out of this book. So if you're a nerd... Do your best nerd siren. Like a, a nerd alert. Thank you for, um, anyway. 
Uh, so I have this book, Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Kelly. It's quite large and big, and many of you have gotten this book, and some of you are reading along. And so if you are, you could uh, read chapter 12 would be your homework assignment, if you want homework assignments. And by the way, if you haven't, if you have the book and you're not reading it, the chapters do kind of stand alone. Um, and so you don't have to follow, you don't have to read in order. You won't be totally lost as long as you're keeping up with the Sunday School lectures. As we've been talking about church history, it should flow right in. So chapter 12. And as far as review goes, I don't want to beat a dead horse, figuratively speaking, of course, um, and reviewing every week. But uh, in November, we talked about early church history, talked about how there was persecution amongst the early church. And then in December last month, we talked about how Christianity was legalized. And this month, we are talking about the spread of imperial Christianity. Last week, Adam Molesky led us in a lesson of the Nicene Creed and how that was formed, the first worldwide ecumenical, that's what that word means, Council came together and came up with a creed that we still say to this day, the Nineteen Creed, and so that's pretty cool. So, Christianity was illegal, and then it becomes legal. So, you can imagine that all these fence-setters, like fence-sitters uh, on Christianity, were like, I kind of want to be a Christian, but being a Christian means I'm going to be whipped. Being a Christian means I'm going to be beaten. Being a Christian means I might have to give my life maybe even in a brutal way in a coliseum or something. So you know what, I'm just, I'm not, I'm just going to stay on the fence, and I kind of, you know, I'm thinking about Christianity, but I don't want to commit yet. So when Christianity is legalized, you get like a Black Friday rush of people coming into Christianity, as, as maybe they well should. Um, it becomes easy to be a Christian, so you get a rush of new Christians. And so if you remember, Christianity was legalized in 311, A.D. by Constantine, who becomes a Christian, and here's a picture of a Good Friday, not a Good Friday, a Black Friday rush into, I don't know if it's Walmart or Kmart or Target, I don't know, but look at their faces, they're so happy to be busting down the door and coming in, and think about this for just a second. Think about all these new Christians coming in to the church, and let's say you had been a Christian. Um, during the time when it was illegal, during the time when it was hard. So if you were a Christian in the time, when, in the time that it was hard and illegal, maybe you were whipped at one point in your life and beaten for your Christianity. So, so like, feel your back. Doesn't that hurt? Think ahead. Feel your back. You're like, like, pretend you're a Christian. Let me finish that. Pretend, pretend you're a Christian in the early church and you have been beaten by the Romans for being a Christian. So everybody like, like, oh my God, he kills out. Um, and let's say, um, getting more serious, let's say some of you had lost loved ones, family members that were brought before the Roman Empire um, and killed, asked if they were a Christian. They did not deny, they did not deny Jesus. And so they were killed, maybe on the spot or maybe in the Colosseum. So maybe you're missing a loved one, a brother or sister in the church, or a family member, so your back hurts and you're crying. Everybody? All right, that's pathetic. Anyways, so let's say I was a Christian. I was one of you. So I, I'm chilling with this table. I'm like, what's up, guys? We're all Christians. Yeah, it's cool. And then the Romans, they come and get me. And I'm taken away with the Romans. And they say, are you a Christian? If you are we're, we're probably going to kill you. We're at least going to beat you. And I, under that pressure, I lapse. I, um, it's, the, it's this problem of the lapse. So here's a painting, someone's interpretation of 
some Romans in the background, it's, it's hard to see, coming in and, and breaking up a Christian assembly. And there's people being, uh, their clothes ripped apart, a kid is being uh, drug out, and this kind of thing happened in the early church. So let's say the early church, uh, in the early church, the Romans come and get me, and they ask me, are you a Christian? If you are, um, we're, we're probably going to kill you, we're at least going to beat you uh, within an inch of your life. And I, having a moment of weakness, I deny Christ. I say, you know what, I, I've been doubting this thing anyways, I'm not a Christian, I'll, I'll burn incense to Caesar, um, I, I recant my faith, I lapse, that, that word means uh, to like lose your membership, if your gym membership lapses, it means you lost your gym membership. Um, so I am now a lapsed Christian. They let me go. The Romans, they, they're like, are you a Christian? I'm like, no, I guess I'm not really a Christian. They let me go. And so here I am. Um, and then let's say Constantine becomes the emperor and legalizes Christianity. Well, now it's not illegal to be a Christian anymore. So I, one of the last, would be like, guys, come back. It's legal. I could be a Christian. High five, right? No, no, you wouldn't high five me. Don't high five me. High five. No, no. They're not. They're like, come on, guys. Remember when we were all hanging out? High five. No, no, he's not high fiving me for good reason. Seemingly, right? It's like my faith was tested. Maybe some of their faith were tested, and and they have the the whip marks to prove it. They have they have lost loved ones, and here I come, like a lapsed, a poser Christian back to the fold, and it is a problem for the early church. Like, what do we do with all these people that were tested, and in the moment of their test, they be, they denied Christ? And here they are, rushing back in. I'll put back the picture, picture of these happy Black Friday Christians rushing back in, trying to get back into Christianity, or brand new Christians who just are doing it because it's the popular thing to do. The empire is becoming Christian, and so you get all these people rushing in to Christianity. What do you do if you are a true Christian? Well, think about that for a second. Like these, these Christians coming back that were either lapsed or these brand new Christians coming in. It's like um, if you've been a long-time Broncos fan, anybody a long-time Broncos fan, um, you might see like this this in now that the Broncos are doing pretty good. They have a playoff game today. You might see... You might see this influx of people like, like, yeah, I'm a Broncos fan. I've always been a Broncos fan. It's like, no, you haven't. Like, I was a Broncos fan back when we weren't winning. I was a Broncos fan back when Elway. I was been a Broncos fan. And so you would feel this like, man, you guys are posers. Just because the team's winning now, you guys are fans. You're not a real fan. I'm a real fan. Anybody ever felt like that? Any Broncos fans? Okay, so look how many hands. You know what I'm talking about. So think about that in the early church when the stakes were much higher, when what it meant to be a Christian was death. And then it becomes legalized that all these posers seemingly, uh, I say it with, with quotations because maybe some of them, maybe all of them were had legitimate faith, but like everybody's doing it now. It's the popular thing to do. All these Christians are rushing in. So what do you do if you're already a Christian? If you lived in the, in the time of persecution and what it meant to you to be a Christian was suffering and, and giving up potentially your life for the Lord, well, then you would be like, I'm a real Christian. I'm not one of these posers coming in. I'm a real Christian. I know what it means to suffer. And so maybe you would want to move out 
from society and go be a real Christian. Go be live in a real community of real Christians um, who aren't just doing it because it's a popular thing. And this is the time in church history that we now call um, this monastic movement or this ascetic movement, monasticism or asceticism. Um, and those are vocab words. I'll start using them as if you know what they are, so let me explain them. Monasticism uh, comes from the Greek word mona or uh, mono, which means uh, one, to be alone, to, to like separate yourself from the world. That's where we get the word monk. So monks are separate, alone from the world. Uh, and ascetic, the Greek word there, anybody see it? Anybody know it? If you're a Greek scholar, maybe I heard it. Uh, it means to exercise is kind of in there. Um, this idea of exercising your faith. So if you're a monastic or an ascetic, you would be someone who, like, I guess, like St. Simon Stylites, who goes off and exercises their faith in such a way that if they're alone, they're away from the world. And you can kind of see, if you're following with me, you, and you're into the mindset of the early Christians, you can see why they would want to go do that. Like all these posers, supposedly, these Christians are coming in because it's the popular thing to do. And if you're a real Christian, it's like, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to go be a real Christian where uh, I, I know what it means to suffer for Christ. I'm going to go be a Christian where I know this community um, will, will be a community of, of Christ and not just be you know, half in, half out, and not be um, syncretistic with their faith and just worship Jesus like another God. I'm going to go be a real Christian. And there was this huge movement uh, around 300s um, to go be monastic or ascetic. And one of the first guys to do this, someone who's known as the father of monasticism, is a guy by the name of St. Anthony, the father of monasticism. And we know a lot about St. Anthony um, because uh, a guy that was talked about last week, if you remember, a guy by the name of Athanasius, he was the guy during the Council of Nicaea that fought for uh, Christ being one with the Father, um, and so that's what we say now in the Nicene Creed. That's what we would say as our Sunday school answer that, that Jesus is God and God is Jesus. So one of the heroes of the Nicene Council was a guy named Athanasius, and he wrote uh, The Life of St. Anthony, which I have here. It's about 15 pages, front and back, and I, I made a couple copies if you're interested in reading it. Or I think I have the website. Uh, it's the next slide, if you could read that. kind of small. Uh, one of the websites where you could read this primary document it's the life of this guy named Anthony. And Anthony was like all of us. He was born to this world, blind, naked, <laughs> obviously. And he lived in Egypt. And then he had parents who died um, somewhere around when Anthony was in his 20s, like, like lots of you in here in your 20s. His parents died, and he was left with an inheritance. He was given um, a lot of money. And it's because his parents died. And he was wondering, what am I going to do with this money? He was a Christian. And instead of buying uh, jet planes, islands, and tigers on a gold leash, he doesn't care. He goes to church one day with all this, you know, this, what am I going to do with this money? What am I going to do with this life that I have to live? He goes to church, and they were reading, as far as the, the lectionary goes. Some churches do lectionary readings. The lectionary reading of that day when St. Anthony uh, I guess he wasn't a saint yet, officially, um, but I guess he kind of was. Anyways, that's a whole other lesson. So Anthony goes to church, and they're reading the same passage we read at the beginning of Sunday school. Do you remember what it was? 
Matthew 19, 16 ish through something ish, is the story, of course, of the, the rich young ruler, the, the guy who comes to Jesus and asks, What should I do to be saved? And Jesus responds, Go give up everything. So Anthony comes into church, hears that verse, and says, That's what I got to do. I have all this money. My parents have passed away. I don't know what to do with my life. Uh, I feel like Jesus is calling me to do as he said to the rich young ruler and give up everything. So he does. He gives up all his money, all his possessions, gives them to the poor. And then he goes out. Uh, he's from Egypt. And so he goes outside of the cities of Egypt uh, from the Nile and lives in the desert by himself. And I don't know where he gets his food from. Maybe some people help him out. Or maybe he goes in and begs every once in a while for food. And, but he makes um, his shelter amongst caves, lives by himself, and tries to follow out to the best of his ability, Matthew 19, of just living, uh, just getting rid of all of his possessions, not owning anything, and living a life that is separate, like mono, like alone, exercising his faith. And what's interesting is he is seen as this hero. Yeah, I should go out and do that too. Uh, and so people come and join him, and he teaches them for a little while, and then they go and live by themselves. And he has somewhat of a following of people who think he is a holy man, which he is. He spends all his time in prayer. People go out to the desert to meet him, to be blessed by him. And it's known as someone who is just very holy, as ascetic, someone who is monastic. And he says um, that the hardest part about being a monk is the temptations he has with the enemy. Reading from our textbook in chapter 12, it says, One night, early in the 4th century, Anthony, the revered Egyptian monk, was standing in the desert, engaged in earnest prayer. And Satan sees the opportunity to, ra- to rally wild beasts in the area to send him against Anthony. And as they surrounded him on every side, and threatened him with looks and ready to jump on him, he looked at them boldly and said unto them, if you have received power from the Lord, draw nigh, delay not, I'm ready for you. But if you have made ready and come at the command of Satan, then get back in your places and tarry not, for I am a servant of the Jesus, the conqueror. And then they leave him. Pretty cool story. So here's a painting um, of, of some demon characters uh, attacking St. Anthony. Here he is maybe trying to float up. And the demons are like whipping him with sticks and stuff. This painting uh, is a pretty famous painting because anybody know the artist of this painting? Uh, it's one of the Ninja Turtles, uh, Michelangelo. <laughs> painted this painting. It's the first painting that we have of Michelangelo's. Uh, supposedly, he painted this painting when he was only 12 years old. Uh, I don't know what you were doodling when you were 12 years old, um, but Michelangelo was supposed to be drawing Saint Anthony being tempted and tormented by demons. And if you're ever in um, if you're ever in Fort Worth, Texas, this painting sits in a museum. You can go look at it. But um, anyways, this idea of living separate, like, just, like I mean, we talk about how we're not of this world, but, but Anthony, um, he lives that out in a, in a different way than all of us. And if you're in here, well, then you're obviously not living as a hermit in the woods. Um, and so, it's just following the Lord in a different way, being a monastic. And I think we could see why he would do that and why there was this movement to monasticism and asceticism because of the culture at the time. So I want to give you a discussion question as you're thinking about some of this and pondering it. 
Um, I want to want to like split the room somehow. So like, so, so some people get like split literally in half. Um, anyway, um, I'm kidding. Um, so the left side of the room. So if you're over here, try to talk about some of the strengths of monasticism. Some of the strengths of, of these individuals that lived a life that was separate than the world, a life that exercised their faith. And I think this side of the room, I, uh, what, are, what are some of the weaknesses? Obviously, um, we aren't living like hermits and on pillars. We would say that's, that's kind of exaggerated. So there's weaknesses uh, to that kind of monastic life. So let's have a discussion, and then I have a microphone. I'll, I'll go out, and maybe we'll, we'll get different sides. So spend some time, if you're on this side, thinking about the strengths. If you're on this side, spend some time thinking about the weaknesses of this type of monasticism. Ready? Get set? Go. Maybe I'll start with this side over here. Um, what are some of the strengths of monasticism? Maybe one of the ones. You got something? Because, all right, I want to make sure. Go ahead. I said you could grow one heck of a beard. That's true. That's one of the strengths. If you're being a hermit, you grow a very sweet beard. What else for the strengths? Okay. Not that that one doesn't count. It's a good one. You get really good one-on-one time with God. You get really good one-on-one time with God. Like talk about hours and hours, uh, potentially days and days alone. With God. What about some of the this, this type of weaknesses? Be lots of hands. So, Larry, what's a weakness of this type of monasticism? You don't have other people to kind of guide where you're, what you're thinking, so you can come up with maybe critical, you know. Yeah, you don't have other people to help you out. I think if Simon Stylites had some friends, maybe some of those friends would say something like, "Hey, bro." The whole pillar thing and the worm and your rope thing, you know, you might want to dial that back a notch. Uh, that's just not normal, bro. Um, yeah, what else? A weakness, Michael? You have more temptation from what I was getting from my group. you more likely to get, like, more Satan talking in the ear, like, why are you doing this? Sure, it's nuts. Yeah, so you don't have friends, uh, a church to influence you, and so you could get a little nuts, um, like Anthony or St. Simon Stylites. Maybe they went a little nuts. I don't know. I wasn't around. Um, but that's a weakness. A strength? Okay. The things that our table said, it's like a long-term exercise. So, come what we were saying earlier, good yeah. long time with God. Um, you're making yourself weak and vulnerable, so God can speak to you. Um, you're taking away distractions. You kind of have to prioritize. Yeah, and it's kind of a good signpost to the rest of us who are not living like that. Whether it's a good long-term thing or not, um, it brings discomfort. Yeah, good. So it's like the time uh, that other people can look at and be like, I want to model that in some way. Give the last comment for a strength, Aaron. Because, well, I think I'm going to restate kind of what's already been said in terms of it allows you to focus on God. Uh, some of the best theologians in Christian history have been monks or hermits uh, or um, you know, a part of an order that has separated themselves from society. So that, that singular focus on God, I think, helps bring in tune uh, your soul to what God's purpose and plan for that is. Yeah, good. So you have, so since you have so much time, you can devote it to being, 
I don't know, reading the Bible, being a theologian in a way that someone else couldn't be. One more. Jonathan, go ahead. Uh, when Jesus is talking, he says the second uh, most important commandment is to love others. Yeah. And so it's a weakness. A weakness is an asceticism. How do you love each other and be, if you're just by yourself in a cave, <laughs> commandment number one, or commandment love God, commandment number two, uh, love others. How do you love others when there's no others around? Well, this whole monasticism thing, I think, begins pretty radically. You look at Anthony's life, and you're like, wow, that's pretty radical, like going out and being a hermit. Um, or St. Simon's style, like even more radical, in my opinion, living on a pillar for 30 years. That's pretty radical. And as this monasticism starts to grow, it, it, in some ways it gets dialed back in, and there is something called a rule. Um, a rule, a, and this isn't just like, our, our definition of rule would be like a, a law or something. But this is more, the, the definition of a rule when it comes to monasticism is like a way of life. The way of life, what rule do you live by? And it's, it's like, when do you pray? What do you do? How do you live? And the most popular, not the first uh, monastic rule, but the most popular throughout the Middle Ages, as we would get into later in church history, and it's even popular today if you talk to monks or nuns, or what rule do you follow? Well, they'll probably have some sort of Benedictine rule um, or variation of a Benedictine rule. So here's the guy, St. Benedict. That's uh, him. Picture taken at some party he went to. Um, um, St. Benedict. The guy who lived, this is kind of jumping ahead a little in church history, uh, in the 400s. But he comes up with this rule, this way of life, this way of life of living if you are going to be a monk or a nun. And you could read this rule, you could read it in its primary source. Uh, There's lots of websites that have this rule uh, for you to to read. Here's one of them, newadvent.org, captain slash 024368.htn, if you're interested in reading. Uh, and you'll see, like, very practical rules of life. Like, first of all, um, he, he sees in um, Psalm 119, the longest Psalm, verse 164, it says, Seven times I prayed to you, O Lord. And so St. Benedict is like, well, we're going to pray seven times. And he actually adds one. He says, we're going to actually pray eight times a day, every day, um, around-the-clock prayer, day and night night and day. Like, that's what he, it's like every, it comes out to be every three hours. You get up at 6 a.m., you have a prayer meeting, 6, 7, 9, you have another uh, 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 prayer meeting. These prayer meetings aren't hour long, they're more like 20 to 30 minutes long. Um, around the clock, 12, 3, 4, 5, 12, 1, 2, 3, 3 o'clock in the afternoon you pray, 3, 5, 6, I can't count. Uh, you have an evening prayer, Seventy-nine. You have a prayer meeting. Vigils uh, are what's it called? Vigils are uh, what's the prayer? Anyways, the Latin word. Uh, you pray in the evening, then you go to bed for just a little while. Then you wake back up at midnight, have another quick prayer meeting, and then you go back to sleep for a few hours. At three a.m., you get up, you have another little prayer meeting. You go back uh, to preparing breakfast. Um, you eat at you pray at six, and then you kind of start your day off around the clock prayer um, for these slots of time, which is kind of like Eric and I were talking this morning, like she got up last night because of Rowan, and she had a nurse Rowan every two hours. So she was like, oh, three hours, that doesn't sound too bad. Um, 
But anyways, it leads to the quote on the back of your, if you have the notes this morning, the quote of the day is something like, uh, the sleepy like to make excuses. Because if you're a monk or a nun under the order of St. Benedict, under the rule of St. Benedict, well then you're, you're praying kind of at all times. Like throughout the day and night you're praying, which I imagine you'd be a little tired doing that. So some of the other things of the rules, you live in a community. So no living out on a pillar by yourself, no living out like a hermit by yourself. You live in community and you have other monks uh, living with you. You call them abbots and so you're obedient to them. If you want to be a member of the community, you can't just join. Um, you have to uh, do your due diligence uh, to join. There's the application process starts with you just like waiting outside of the gates for a couple days to show how serious you are before entering into the rule of St. Benedict and into the monastery. Uh, you're, of course, celibate lifestyle. You, you don't have any girlfriends or boyfriends. Um, you don't get married. You don't have a family. You're celibate. Um, the meals you eat, uh, I thought this was interesting. Chapter 39 is about what you eat. It says, therefore, let two cooked dishes suffice for all the brethren. So how many meals a day? Two. Uh, and if, but if any fruit or fresh vegetables are available, let a third dish be added. So you get three dishes, potentially, if it's like summertime and there's fresh veggies. Otherwise, you get two. Uh, you get a pound of bread. Some of you will think this is interesting. Um, you get uh, a half a pint of wine per day, um, and that's like a glass of wine per day. Someone asked, could you save up those glasses, or could you take the other month's rations if they didn't like it? Probably not. Um, but it's, a, it, like it, it, it's all these rules, that's why it's called a rule, of how you're to live, like even what you're supposed to eat, even what time you're supposed to get up, and, and, and the, the community is supposed to work for itself. It's supposed to be self-sufficient. So you have some land, and you farm that land, and the community is self-sufficient. Even like today, um, a lot of monasteries are self-sufficient. They'll, they'll sell honey or products or organic things. Uh, some of them are really into brewing beer or wine, um, and and they're known for that, which is kind of interesting. Some, even like some monasteries, like, I forget, is it Holy Cross down in Canyon City, which was a monastery for a long time. They had a vineyard, which they had some wine, and the, the monastery went, went away, but they still have the winery. and that interesting? But anyways, um, this lifestyle of living apart, it's like some of the, the weaknesses we said about the monastic movement are dialed back in. It's like, let's not live alone. In fact, when someone comes to the community, with the need, it says in the rule of Benedict that you are to welcome them like Christ himself. So if someone comes and is like, I have nowhere to live, I'm hungry, I'm, uh, I'm homeless or whatever, you would welcome them in as if you were welcoming in Christ himself. And so that obviously comes uh, as a warm welcome to anyone in need. So these communities did have some outside uh, ministering to the communities. They, they were a community of amongst themselves. They weren't like hermits living alone, which in my mind, um, that, that dials it back in a little bit. It's like, St. Simon, that's weird. That is crazy. Living out like Anthony, and, I mean, just look at the hills. Like, just go out and just live for a year or so by yourself. It's, in my mind, crazy. Um, but it's not that crazy to, to live in a community of Christians who are all seeking the same thing. Especially for those of you that are in your 20s, I think of um, something like DLA. Any DLAers here? Woo-woo. Um, be proud. If you're an DLAers, woo-woo. 
All right. Um, so to brag about BLA for just a second, you, you may not see the Desperation Leadership Academy as a monastic movement, but what else would it be? Like, in, in thinking about church history um, and con- connecting ourselves with uh, the greater church and church history, of course, that's really like what it is. These BLA students uh, can tell you about their life. They kind of had a rule. And you can ask them about it. They, they get up at certain times. They have to go to prayer meetings. I was talking to a guy this week named Bradley. In the morning, he was like, I just did four back-to-back prayer meetings. And I was like, wow. He's like, yeah. In the afternoon, I got like five more. I was like, hey, it's intense. Like that's, I mean, it, he's kind of like a monk, if you think about it. Um, some of them live here, literally. You might not know this, but like if you go out these wings of hallways, there's like rooms. And DLA students live here. You might not know that. And they pray here, the, the furnace prayer room, out the out these main doors and to the left, there's a prayer room, and they pray. And especially this week and next week, uh, the 21 days of prayer, they pray day and night, night and day. There's there's prayer going on, which is pretty cool to brag about these DLA students, because we, at least in my own mind, maybe I shouldn't think like this, but when I think of a month, I think of some, like, old dude with, like, a weird haircut uh, and some robes. Uh, and doing some Gregorian chants. But it doesn't have to look like that. It could look like Zealite. And that's, in some senses, uh, a monastic movement of our day. And so hopefully that kind of um, encourages you, whether you're in DLA or not, I imagine the majority of you are not in DLA, but encourages us that a monastic lifestyle can be for a time. A monastic lifestyle can be uh, modeled in a different way. It doesn't have to look like farming and, and Gregorian chants, like it did in the Middle Ages. It can look uh, differently, like today. And so, um, I guess I just, in, in conclusion, before we wrap up, I just want to encourage us with this idea that um, to look at our own lives and say, uh, is, is our own life, do we do whatever we want when we want, or is there some sort of order or pattern to our life of coming to church, um, which all of you are here, um, and that's, that's awesome for those of us that are here. Um, coming to church, do you have a lifestyle of prayer? Is there, um, is, is there a lifestyle of giving up things, uh, fasting? Is there a lifestyle of exercising your faith? Um, and so that, I'll leave us with that kind of thought. Um, but before we end, I thought um, it would be kind of cool um, to see some monks or nuns in action. It'd be kind of cool to do a field trip. Anybody like field trips? Me too. So we're going to do our first ever field trip. I, there's, there's actually a monastery in town. You might not know this. Like, you would probably be able to see it from here. I, I haven't tried to see it from here. But it's, uh, you just take Woodman until, like, Woodman ends going into the mountains. And it's called Mount St. Francis. There's some nuns who, who live there and are following the order of... Uh, uh, St. Francis, and it's a rule that was developed after this, the rule of St. Benedict, and so we, we could go there, and I emailed them, and they said, they'll take us and give us a tour, so if you want, uh, be here next, this Saturday coming up at 1020, and we'll carpool over, and we'll go and get a tour, and take some selfies with some nuns, and... I don't know, I haven't been, so I, I myself, I'm kind of like, what should we expect? I don't know. Someone asked, do we have to be quiet? I don't know. Um, I don't know. So we'll, we'll check it out as Sunday school. So if you're into field trips, um, uh, 
be here next week. I think um, maybe I, I was going to do like a sign-up sheet so I have some idea of how many people are coming, but then I forgot to print that out. Um, so if you're interested in going, I guess um, email my emails on all the um, the uh, like the little bookmark things. So email me if you're interested, just so I have an idea of how many people are coming, whether it's five or fifty. That's a big difference. Um, and, and then I could tell the nuns how many people to expect. So if you're coming, email me sometime this week so that I have an idea if, if you're coming. Um, and and then we'll have a trip to a monastery. How cool is that? Is it cool? All right, I'm, I'm excited about it. We'll probably like get some Chick-fil-A or something afterwards. Uh, maybe we'll invite the nuns. Uh, I don't know. Are they, are they allowed to leave? I don't know. These are the kinds of questions I'll be asking. Um, so anyways, we have like four minutes. I want to take like 60 seconds uh, and just talk very briefly about Catholicism um, because we've been talking about saints and St. Francis and, of course, the monastery we'll be going to on our field trip next week is a Catholic monastery. And as Protestants, uh, various ones of you in this room have uh, different opinions about Catholics. I grew up Catholic. If you didn't know that, I had, uh, just to brag about myself, I had perfect attendance for 10 years at a Catholic Sunday school growing up. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I had to beg for a little applause. Um, anyway, it's really not my I shouldn't be the one getting the applause because I was the one being drugged by my parents. They were the ones being very consistent in my life, uh, raising us, me and my brother. Uh, so anyways, I'm very familiar with Catholicism. Um, but I wanted to say something about Catholicism because... Um, right now, it, it, where we are in church history, at least right now, in the 300s and the 400s, there is not yet, and this might blow your mind if you're new to church history, there is not yet any Protestants. There is not yet any Baptists or Lutherans or um, Methodists or Presbyterians. There's no Protestants yet. Everybody would could be, I mean, Catholicism will look very differently in the 300s than it does now. There, for instance, probably wasn't a pope like we know the papacy in the 300s. <clears throat> but the church had not yet split yet. And we'll get to the point in the 1500s, if you're not familiar with that, it's not until the 1500s that there is a reform, reformation of the Catholic Church or a protest, and it's our name, Protestants, the protesters of the Catholic Church that split from Catholicism. So, just a word about Catholicism as you're like, why are we visiting a Catholic monastery? Well, if we're looking at church history and getting in line with, with what a monastery would have looked like in the 300s, well, Protestants aren't around yet. It, it, it was much more Catholic. Uh, and, and by the way, we and Catholics share the same church history until like the 1500s. So um, just a word about that. Uh, we'll talk a lot more about Catholicism in the, the weeks and months to come, this, this, this church history series is looking like it's going to be uh, a lot more months than I had planned. I thought, like, oh, we'll just go until, like, the middle of winter. Well, it's already the middle of winter, and here we are, like, barely in the 300s. Um, we've got a lot more ways to go. So, anyways, um, that's that. That's the word about Catholicism that I just wanted to share briefly. And so, to conclude, I just thought, going back to this idea of exercising our faith, um, here's some people exercising literally their bodies. But there is something to be said about exercising our faith. Like when you exercise your muscles, your biceps, 
uh, doing some bench presses. Anybody do some bench presses? Several guys. Um, like, whatever you, maybe push-ups are a better example. If I asked everyone to do a push-up right now, or to, to limit out on push-ups, the average number of push-ups the, the American can do, according to the, the interwebs, is something like 10 to 15 push-ups. Maybe some of you could do less. Maybe some of you could do more. I'd be like, well, I could do like 15 million. Um, anyways, um, however many you could do, if, if we limited out in push-ups right now, don't worry, we're not going to do that. Uh, that'd be awkward. Um, however many you could do, whether it be 10 or 15 or 30 or even 50, if you began tracking that and exercising, of course you'd be able to do more push-ups in a couple months than you were able to do today. And the same is true of this ascetic idea of exercising our faith. The more time we spend praying, the more time we spend fasting, the more time we spend reading the text of Scripture, the stronger spiritually we get. There is a connection there. Um, and if we've learned anything this morning, um, that's it. That's this connection. So a self-examination of our lives. Uh, of, of how are we living? What is our quiet times look like. David Perkins, two, uh, three weeks ago now, I guess, spoke a sermon about just do a quiet time. Like the whole sermon, an hour long, was about do a quiet time. That's so important to our to our lives and our daily walk and to exercise. If nothing else, it's an exercise of our faith. And so I wanted to leave us with that before we conclude. So let's pray to, to end our time together. Lord, we do position ourselves to you, to you, Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And God, as we look back at church history and see some of these figures who um, exercise their faith in such radical ways, Lord, may we learn from them. May we be encouraged by some of these heroes of the faith, some of these people who have gone before us and, and lived um, lives that seem so radical to us. Um, but Lord, would you encourage us and, and bring us to a point of following you and submitting to you, being willing as we prayed at the beginning of Sunday school, to give up, um, to give up comforts and to give up conveniences of this world, that we may strengthen ourselves and our um, strengthen our spiritual walks, our spiritual lives, uh, our spiritual relationship with you, Father. So we, we love you, we worship you. You're a good God. And everybody said, "Amen." So peace to you. Peace out. Thank you for listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.